This morning's reading comes from Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. Certain people came down from Judea and Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm looking out at you this morning, and I'm not sure who. But I'm pretty sure in a couple of months, somebody is going to schedule an appointment with me, and the conversation is going to be, Pastor Bob, we we decided we wanted to get married. Because it happens all the time. All kinds of people fall in love when they come to school and they want to get married, and then they come for premarital counseling. So how does that start for me? Those of you who've gone through it with me can attest to this. One of the first things I do in the first premarital counseling session is to alert you to something. And here's what I alert you to. I am here, among other reasons, to stir up trouble. I'm going to do my best to create conflict in your relationship. And I'm doing it for a reason. Because you're about ready to get married and you need to know how to handle that. That's why so many people go to John instead of me for premarital counseling. I mean... (laughs) That's not the way to start out, but I do anyway, and I, I know he does something of the same, perhaps not in that order. Why? Because conflict is absolutely inevitable in marriage. It's not only inevitable, let me say something else. It's a really good thing. It's an excellent thing. 
because you won't grow without it. You're two individuals and like iron sharpens iron, you need to sharpen one another. And it happens more often than any place and better than any place in a marriage. One of the books that I use to refer to has a chapter in it called, Do You Know How to Fight Well? That's a premarital counseling book. You know what we just saw in the reading this morning? We saw a good fight in the church. We saw a huge dispute among people who all claim to be following Jesus Christ. And this dispute was settled in the end. How was it settled? And what are the applications for that settlement? Well, first, let's remember the people, okay? The story we just had read had people involved. That's where disputes start with people. You have Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel with people outside of Jerusalem, way far away in the Roman Empire, and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. That comes through the Jewish lineage of the Old Testament. And in spite of that, people are coming to faith in Christ who know nothing of the Jewish religion. Some of them did, some of them didn't, but they were Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are experiencing this. Then there's a group of men, unnamed, who come down from Judea to Antioch to see what's going on with the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. They come down and they have a different approach to things and it causes quite a dispute. Their approach to things relates to the law of Moses and the importance of keeping the law for the purpose of salvation. Then you have another group of people. You have the elders at Jerusalem. That, of course, would have been the apostles, but some others as well. And among those people, you may have diversity of opinion concerning this notion too. At the very least, it's a controversy they have to deal with. And two central figures among that group of people are Peter and James. You remember Peter, the one who's got the foot in the mouth disease, right? As the apostle, he's always saying things that are out of line, but is absolutely passionately sold out for Jesus Christ. And he's the one who also gets this revelation concerning Gentiles and unclean animals. And then you got James. James seems to be kind of like the president of the assembly or the church. And James apparently is a person who's well-known and a respected leader. So there's the players. Now, the dispute is uh, discussed. And here's the major issue. The men I just mentioned that came down from Judea said salvation through Jesus is a wonderful thing for the Gentiles. There's only one problem. You're leaving out the law of Moses. You can't be saved just with Jesus. You must also follow all the laws of Moses. Now, they used the word circumcision. That was huge. That was looming large for them. But it wasn't just that. That that word circumcision frequently just refers to a whole bunch of dietary and ceremonial laws related to Jewish worshipers. So it was more than just circumcision. It was about the rest of the law. If that wasn't true, James wouldn't have said what he said about other ceremonial laws. So there was more than just circumcision going on there. They wanted them to follow all the ceremonial laws of Moses. Jesus plus the law equals salvation. Paul and Barnabas obviously had a different opinion. It said they disputed this matter 
vigorously, vociferously. They were really in it. So they had a different opinion on this issue. There was another group that I didn't mention earlier. You, you may have heard them referred to. It was called the believers from the party of the Pharisees. Isn't that a curious reference? Who was the number one interlocutor, debate partner, enemy of Jesus in most of his teachings? The Pharisees. Who were always testing him and trying him and trying to put him on the spot? The Pharisees. Who did he condemn more than anybody else in the New Testament? The Pharisees. And there are people in this new community who still are members of the party of the Pharisees. And they're following Jesus. You might expect that they think following Jesus also includes following the law. And you might expect knowing Pharisees that you do, that Pharisees want to require other people to follow the laws of Moses as well. You see the characters? You see the dispute beginning to happen? Peter stands up and he says, after the debate has ensued, I want to tell you something, brothers. No, I want to remind you of something. Some time ago, God revealed himself to me in a vision. You remember that vision? And he probably explained it in detail, though we don't have that in the text. What he didn't say is it was about 10 years ago. That's what we believe, according to the chronology, that it was probably 10 years ago that that vision came to Peter, even though it was only in Acts chapter 9 in our text. And Peter says, coming out of that, embracing that realization that the gospel is for the Gentiles also, I don't see how we can be so strict with these new believers. In other words, the law of Moses, it doesn't really apply here the way you think it does. James came forward at the very end of it, and he was kind of the conclusion of the matter. By the way, James was known as a very conservative fellow and probably had a very stern character about him as well. And he was kind of the president of the group, at least at the time. And James said, my friends, brothers, I... I don't think we should burden the Gentiles in this way. I agree with Peter. Peter also said, why should we place this yoke around their necks of the law of Moses when let's be honest, none of us who even grew up with it were able to keep it either. James says, I agree with Peter and we, we ought to do something to relieve the burden on these Gentiles. So here's what I recommend. I recommend that we send a message to them that goes like this. First of all, we would like for you to abstain from sexual immorality. That, by the way, is the only admonition that he gives that might be associated with the moral law. The others are about the ceremonial law. Why would he even do that? You might say it's pretty obvious. Not so much. Not so much because... The Christian ethic concerning sexuality and marriage between a husband and wife and sex being in that relationship only was absolutely a revolutionary idea for lots of people in Rome. Huge revolutionary idea. People had mistresses all the time. It was accepted. As a matter of fact, there were little sayings about having mistresses and wives and concubines and prostitutes. Those sayings I, I will skip especially for the younger ones in the audience, but they were outrageous. So he says, 
you ought to keep yourself sexually pure. Sex ought to be in the marriage covenant, in effect. Though he doesn't use those words. We know that from Paul later. And then he says, you also shouldn't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That's what that phrase means. And furthermore, you shouldn't eat meat that has blood in it. Now, probably the literal translation in your text says not eat blood or drink blood. That, of course, would have been a prohibition as well. But there was a prohibition in the Old Testament law related to blood in the meat and the importance of draining that blood. And you shouldn't eat meat that's been strangled. That is, animals that have been strangled don't eat their meat, probably, again, associated with some sort of ceremonial law related to blood. The point is, he didn't give them too many mandates. He could have given them a whole bunch more mandates from the ceremonial law of Moses. But he said, no sexual immorality, no meat sacrificed to idols, no blood or strangled animals. Do these and you would be well. They got together and wrote up this letter and sent it out to them. And you know what they said? They said, it seems best to the Holy Spirit and to us for you to follow these regulations, but not worry about the others. Interesting, isn't it? So what is a summary of the conclusion of this matter? Well, first, there was consensus after the debate. They debated it vigorously. All sides were heard. And once they were finished, they made a decision. You say, well, that's pretty simple. Maybe it's simple, but it's important. Second, they considered themselves to be led by the Spirit. They didn't just think this was a free-for-all conversation that was unimportant. They basically listened to all the opinions and then they said, we believe it's right and we feel that the Spirit has led us to give you these instructions. The Church of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts has a canopy over it besides the general grace of Jesus Christ. And the canopy over the church is that they're being constantly led by the Spirit. That's how they see themselves. We're led by the Spirit. And we believe this is what the Spirit is speaking to the church right now about this issue. There's a third thing I see in their conclusion. In their conclusion, did you notice? Maybe not. Two cultures were actually accommodated at the same time with the one mandate. The first culture that's accommodated, obviously, is the culture of the Gentiles. In other words, they said, we're not going to make you follow all the ceremonial laws of Moses. Your Gentile culture does not suggest that you have to live that way, nor do we suggest it. It's faith in Christ. And they also accommodated the other culture. The other culture was the Jewish culture. They said, but the law of Moses has been preached in synagogues forever around here. Given that particular culture, it's probably best for you to abstain from these things. Sometimes we get all high and mighty about our interpretation of Scripture. And we suggest that we're not influenced by culture. We just interpret Word of God. We call it like we see it. There is truth. And this is the way it goes. Sounds really great. But for the most part, 
It's just not true. Because you cannot interpret Scripture without interpreting it through the lens of culture and experience and the leadership of the Spirit. It's inevitable that you interpret Scripture through multiple lenses and it affects the outcome of your interpretation. I also noticed that the debate was vigorous and respectful. Do you notice they didn't tell the party of the Pharisees, you can't have a seat at the table? You and Jesus didn't get along for three years in his ministry. You got a reputation. You can't be here. None of that was said. The Pharisees, who were also believers, basically sat down at table for dialogue as well. Every voice was heard. I also noticed that there was... Diversity, it seems to me, of opinion after the consensus was drawn up. Now, you may say that's an argument from silence, okay? I'll give you credit for that one. Probably a good accusation of my position. But extended beyond this passage, I think it becomes abundantly clear. That though the declaration was this, not everyone agreed that that ought to have been the declaration. They just abided by the declaration. To to, to put it another way, nobody suggested that the party of the Pharisees should no longer be part of the church. Translation, if you're part of the party of the Pharisees, you're not going to agree with this. You are going to continue to follow the law of Moses, specifically and to every detail. And you're going to surrender to the authority of the church and say, the Gentiles don't have to, even though I would like for it to be different. Their opinion likely did not change. But they surrendered to what they believed was the leadership of the Spirit in the church. I also noticed that this was a particular situation. And they made application to this particular situation. And for that reason, it doesn't seem like it was a universal mandate. Why do I say that? If you take a look at 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses some of these very same issues. Chief among them is the sacrifice of meat to idols in the marketplace. And certain individuals were really concerned about going to the market and buying that meat because it had already been sacrificed to idols. And you know what Paul said? He said, don't worry about it. That doesn't sound like this mandate. He said, don't worry about it because there's no such thing as a God who's also an idol. There's only one God. Translation, that meat could have been sacrificed to 15 idols and it wouldn't make any difference because God is the God of all creation. You don't need to worry about that. So eat all meat from the market in good conscience. Now some would suggest that Paul's Admonition concerning the weaker brother is the same thing as James's admonition, the counsel here in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. I don't see it that way, and we could disagree about that. In this passage, it seems to be very much an admonition, abstain from these things, period. There might be a reason for it that has something to do with sensitivity to those who are of the Jewish persuasion in the synagogues. But the mandate is clear, don't do it. With Paul, that mandate does not exist. The only reason it might exist is because if you have somebody in your midst, he says, who 
Eating meat would create a stumbling block for them. Don't do it for their sake. Okay? I think it's um, interesting when we take a passage of Scripture like this and, and attempt to apply it. One thing that's not a contemporary application is the particular elements of this text. How many of you would raise your hand and say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for Jews alone? Right? Nobody. Every one of you would say it's not only for Gentiles, which just means anything but Jews, according to the text, but it's for every single race and every single tribe and every single nation and every single socioeconomic level, right? That's what you would say. And that's what the church began to say at this time. But the church applied principles that I think were universal principles later on in ways that they didn't at the time the principle was delivered. What in the world are you talking about, Bob? Here's what I'm talking about. Slavery. Now, you again may dispute this with me. Have at it. I'm fine with it. But there is no, in my opinion, precise mandate against slavery in the Old or New Testament. Try to find it for me, email it to me, and we can have a conversation. There is no mandate that abolishes slavery in the New Testament. You say, well, what about the book of Philemon? Yeah, I know about that book. It's not a mandate that abolished slavery. It's the introduction of a principle in the life of a believer who becomes a part of the larger church that undermines slavery. Paul never said, do not have slaves. What did he say? I want you to treat this slave who ran away from you as if he were a brother. Now try to do that to the fullest extent of that principle and allow him to remain your slave. I couldn't do it. I would hope that was the intent of the Apostle Paul. That if I tried to implement that principle, slavery would be overturned in my life. And actually it was. But you know how long it took the church to get there, right? 1,800 years? Are you kidding me? The principle that undermines slavery, even though it's not a straight-up statement of the abolition of slavery, it takes 1,800 years for the church to come around to this notion. And then we get to the place, don't we, sitting here in this audience that we cannot imagine slavery and Christianity peacefully coexisting. No, we just can't imagine it. Is it because Paul outlawed slavery? No. It's because he introduced a principle that the church understood over time. I wish it had been quicker. They understood over time that the Spirit of God was leading them in an entirely new direction. So slavery is not a problem for you either, right? 
Let's get a little bit more contemporary. I grew up in the South in the 1960s. Racism was a problem. Uh, White-only and black-only drinking fountains, they weren't pictures for me in a magazine. They were the places I stopped as a child with my parents. Racism? Are you kidding me? You're saying to yourself, how could someone be a racist and be a Christian? Good question. If you'd asked that 50 years ago, you would have got a vehement answer about how the two are compatible. And I can remember them coming from my grandfather. What happened? The principle that's introduced way back in Philemon by Paul after 1,800 years of slavery becomes the principle that overturns the notion of racism. And the principle, I would argue, in chapter 15 of the book of Acts could be credited to the overturn of racism. And so now we know it's improper to be racist and a Christian. Now, let's see if we always live it. And the answer is no, we don't. And some cultures continue to struggle with it in ways that are are really difficult. Missionaries go all over the world and they enter class systems. Undesirables that they're not supposed to associate with. And Christians who bracket themselves off into little sections and leave those other ones over there. They, they theoretically know that the gospel is for everybody, but that doesn't mean these people need to be with us. And they struggle with racism. Oh, okay. So it's not racism. It's not slavery for you. What is it? Well, I don't know, but I do know this, that most of us draw lines and move fences, even when we're committed to the authority of Scripture. And we reinterpret Scripture according to our culture. And you say, oh, no, I don't do that. I believe the Bible. Well, let's try this on for size. I don't see a one. I don't see one woman in here with a head covering on her head. Embedded in 1 Corinthians is what you might call a mandate. That in worship, women should wear head coverings. I look around and I see a lot of women who actually have cut their hair. Actually, I don't see any who haven't. And in that same passage to cut or shear or to do anything with your hair other than putting it up on your head as a mature woman is a sign of not being submissive to authority. And as a matter of fact, probably is a cultural reflection that you're a harlot. So the mandate is keep it up, keep it uncut. How many of you do that? No. Or how about this? I can't see this one, but I could speculate. Um, there's also a mandate against braided hair. Say what? Yeah, braided hair. Again, a cultural trapping that the church stepped into and by and large accommodated for cultural reasons, yet a mandate in Scripture. Or just how about this one? Hold your hands up and show me the jewelry. 
Everybody's got it. And there's a prohibition against that too. So the question is, where'd you move your fence to? How did you come to that conclusion? Everybody does it. I think the pattern that's given to us in this text is a good one. You actually enter your world. You enter your culture. You pray passionately. You expect that the Spirit is going to guide you. You come up with consensus. And you make a decision. Oh, by the way, uh, most of those references I referred to are in the same section, not braided here in the jewelry, in the same section that is often used to suggest that women should not be in leadership in the church. Somebody made a choice. Cut hair, we'll let that one go. Women leaders in the church, now we've got to hold on to that one. Why? Well, let me suggest that uh, in the congregation that you now sit in, there's somebody to one side or the other of you that's got a different opinion about that matter and a whole bunch of others, right? And these kind of disputes can rock churches. And frequently, it'll divide a church. Any number of those issues have historically. The question is, how do you resolve such disputes? I think that um, you resolve them this way. It's a principle, not a particular. First of all, you actually believe that the Spirit is guiding the church. Not that the Spirit is guiding you. And it's all about you and Jesus and your determination concerning what's right for the church. But the church is guided by the Spirit. Second, I think that you don't try to mix these two notions, consensus by leadership and unanimity of opinion. Why do I say that? Remember the party of the Pharisees? It doesn't seem like, according to the text, anybody kicked them out. It doesn't seem like, according to the text, maybe they did eventually leave the church. What seems clear, I know it's an argument for silence, is that they remained in the church. And if you're going to be remaining in the church as a believer and also as a party of the Pharisees, you're going to follow all the laws. And you will not have changed your opinion about that. You will have surrendered to the consensus of the church. So let's put it more specifically. My personal opinion about these matters is of little significance compared to the decision of the church. I've been uh, pastoring for 20 years. There's not one single year of those 20 that I agreed with every mandate of any of the churches I pastored. Because I'm an individual and I've got opinions. But I can tell you that for the last 20 years, I've always submitted to the particular mandate of that particular congregation in order to do the work of God. 
And sometimes their standards have changed. And sometimes their standards have been radically different than mine. And I continue to preach the word and do the ministry. So consensus, as I'm defining it, of leadership does not mean unanimity of all parties. There's a third thing I think is important that comes out of this model of dispute and reconciliation and consensus. It's this. Diversity should be embraced. Let me put it another way. I am of a particular opinion about issue A. And you are of a particular opinion that is absolutely opposite concerning issue A. I can disagree with you until the day I die. But not only must I respect you, I need you. I need you to push me and to sharpen me. I need to be in dialogue with you so that I can be what God has called me to be. Diversity is not an enemy. Theological disputes shouldn't divide. They should sharpen us and help us to understand our primary mandate, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ for all people. Does that mean that sometime you're going to have to make a decision to leave a particular church? Yes. I'd say most of the time it's probably not a good decision. But on occasion it might happen. But insofar as it's possible, you shouldn't. Division should be a last resort. And division should be based on principles and not preferences. And let's be honest, folks, more often than not... Divisions and church plants are based on preference and not principle. Uh, the last thing I want to say is not my words at all. And I don't often quote him, but this time I will. John Wesley had a wonderful description of how to settle such disputes. Um, he called it, well, I guess others called it, um, the quadrilateral method. I kind of like saying that word, quadrilateral method. Anyway, it was a fourfold approach, right? And Wesley said this, when concerning issues that are in dispute in the church that are important, you've got to consider Scripture. You know, that's a no-brainer for an evangelical church, right? If we're not considering Scripture, we, we don't even have our birthright in our back pocket. We're, we're done, okay? You've got to consider Scripture. It's the authoritative Word of God, and we stand on it. By the way, everybody's feet, most of you don't know this, it's been too long since I said it. Everybody's feet are standing on a passage of scripture in this church. Because before we built this church and put down the carpet, we came from the other church, the old church, and we all came over after a Sunday morning worship service and we wrote our favorite passage all over the floor, everywhere. Because we wanted to say we're standing on the word of God. Now you may say, well, that's sacrilegious. Sorry, we did it. <laughs> we're standing on the word of God. <laughs> So obviously, Wesley's admonition is, is true for us. We got to start with scripture. We got to argue it vehemently. But we also, in our deliberations, ought to consider tradition. We really should. It's important. The third thing we ought to consider is reason. 
we are rational individuals. We don't want to be irrational and stupid. We want to be reasonable. But the fourth is the one that probably stirs up the most dispute. Wesley said you also ought to consider experience. Oh, for those, you know, straight Bible-believing people, whoo, that gets a little woo out there, right? I mean, don't be experiencing me and doing this with the Bible because of your experience. I get it, I get it, I get it. But remember, the Scripture comes first. What he meant by experience was this. Experience, inevitably. Inevitably. Is a tool by which you interpret scripture. You can't do it any other way, friends. Your experience affects your interpretation of scripture and tradition and your reason. It just does. Or put it another way. You know why this dispute happened? Because Paul and Barnabas had experienced something they never anticipated in a hundred years that they would go out and start proclaiming the gospel and thousands of Gentiles would come to faith in Christ. They had no idea that was going to happen. And that was their experience. And they brought that experience to the elders and they said, what are we supposed to do? It happens to us all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. But we need to be careful. When we make these decisions, we need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for mercy because we're immersed in cultural and personal sins and we need to believe emphatically and unequivocally that the Spirit is guiding the church. That's how we make the decisions. You say, Bob, that's not enough information. Well, do a little digging for yourself then. That's all I got. Let's pray. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life. Um, We're a blundering bunch of saints. We have been for 2,000 years as your church. We've made more mistakes and errors than we could imagine anybody forgiving. But thankfully, uh, your grace is not only abundant and free, but it's eternal and it's, it's everlasting and You continue to forgive us in our blunders personally and corporately. And by your grace, you continue to restore us when we've gone astray. So Lord, help us to be people who dispute well, who know how to argue about important things. Help us to be people who do not alienate those that we disagree with. Help us to be people who find consensus without well, without dissolving our own opinions entirely. Because that diversity of opinions, even when we unite in a consensual manner, that diversity of opinion sharpens us, Lord, and we need it. So give us the grace to live together well, to think together well, to experience life together well, and then to be led by your Spirit. And we'll thank you that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. We can stand as we respond to worship.